0: From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges.
1: This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. The Army says it will delay the launch of its modernized human resources IT systems. The service plans to fully deploy the integrated personnel and pay system in September 2022, nine months later than previously planned. The Army says the setback is mainly due to issues integrating the new system with the legacy systems it's replacing. The Army has spent more than $1 billion on the new networks over six years. The Office of Management and Budget is looking for a chief statistician to push President Biden's data priorities. That post will oversee the quality and timeliness of federal statistics while maximizing the use of data. The new hire will lead implementation of the Evidence Act and chair the Advisory Committee on Data for Evidence Building. The Government Accountability Office reports that agencies did a good job securing their networks for remote work during the COVID-19 pandemic. But the watchdog group found a sample of agencies continued to have vulnerabilities. The GAO found these agencies needed to assess all IT security controls and enhancements and fully document remedial actions. The GAO surveyed 12 agencies and recommended six to take additional security actions. Those agencies were the SEC, the Social Security Administration, the FBI, the Office of Personnel Management, and the Departments of Transportation and Homeland Security. The TSA was created in the wake of the 9-11 attacks with the mission to protect the nation's transportation systems. It faced many challenges, including new technology and workforce. John Pistol was administrator for TSA from 2010 to 2014. Before that, he was deputy director of the FBI. He's currently president of Anderson University. There's a new book about him called John S. Pistol, Searching for Integrity and Faith. John, welcome to the program.
0: Thank you, Mimi. It's good to be with you.
1: What are some of the biggest threats that you had faced during your tenure at TSA between 2010 and 2014?
0: Well, yeah, thanks. Maybe. And thanks for having me on on your show. Um, So most people remember what was known as the underwear bomber, which was Christmas Day 2009. So that's before I took over. But the the threat that he posed the 24 year old Nigerian um, who was flying from Yemen through Europe to Amsterdam to Detroit. On Christmas Day uh, was the non-metallic improvised explosive device, the, the IED. So he could literally could and did go through several airport walk-through metal detectors undetected because, again, there was no metal. It's a non-metallic improvised explosive device, a bomb, and so that was the greatest threat. When I, after I got confirmed by the Senate um, in June of 2010, what could be done to detect uh, and deter a putative terrorist like that? Unfortunately, we learned that uh, the master bomb maker Ibrahim al-Siri had had demonstrated that and worked with some other potential terrorists uh, to use that. So that was the greatest threat.
1: So, what did you do as a result of that? How did you address that?
0: Well, it proved to be pretty unpopular in the short term, but we changed the pat-down procedures uh, uh, to be able to detect uh, somebody that might have an underwear bomb, and and then also uh, looked at some more. Opportunities for how we could do intelligence-based security screening. And so we developed out of that what we call risk-based security. Uh, and probably the best known iteration or, or manifestation of that uh, was TSA PreCheck. And so for your viewers who um, go through TSA Precheck, that came out of that time when we were trying to move from a one-size-fits-all construct which TSA had been stood up with that anybody could be a terrorist and that's literally true but not likely and so we tried to move to if we could have people share a little bit of information about themselves and sign up enroll in a trusted traveler program such as customs border protections global entry program for international travelers could we have a similar program for domestic and some international travelers And so that's where that came out of TSA PreCheck.
1: So tell me a little bit more about TSA PreCheck, about the management of that, the rollout of how that all kind of got implemented.
0: Yeah, so when I got to TSA in 2010, it was really, I mean, it was still a new agency, really eight, um, eight going on nine years old. And so one of the things we did is try to look at how we could move from that one size fits all where... It was just a, a very uh, challenging situation for the TSA officers and for the traveling public frankly that that anybody might be a terror so they might be treated as such and so in looking at you know, those opportunities one of the questions I asked senior leadership is you know, can't we differentiate, differentiate between folks who uh, are tr- more known and trusted recognizing that there's no absolute guarantee with anything Uh, I worked with a couple of FBI agents who turned out to not be trusted people they ended up spying for the Soviets and the Russians and so my question was well why is it then that as an FBI agent I've been able to get on a plane for 26 years uh, with a deadly weapon and they said well that's different you're an FBI agent I said well that's my point can't we use that as a model for the nearly 2 million people uh, US government employees who have security clearances or contractors who have security currencies and things like that. Uh, World War Two veterans and, and you know, all these number of. Opportunities we had to, to change at one size. It's all to risk based intelligence driven security.
1: Well, John, I wonder about train security, because, you know, obviously TSA, we're always thinking about uh, airports and airplanes. Yeah. But, you know, Europe did have attacks on trains. You had the Madrid yeah. bombing. You had that attempt right. on the train going to Paris. Right. How, how does TSA manage those those issues?
0: Yeah, that's a good question, Mimi, because I don't think most people, when they think of TSA, they, they don't think of trains or buses or maybe subways and and pipelines, like colonial pipeline uh, incident, the the cyber intrusion ransomware attack earlier this year. And so I think it's something that um, it's largely done in partnership with the industry. So obviously TSA is a regulatory agency that can uh, levy fines issue fines for those who are not in compliance with the, the rules and regulations that TSA promulgates. But in most of the situations, it's best done in partnership with the industry to say, how can how can we work with industry for them to mitigate their risks from terrorist attacks, such as Madrid you mentioned, and of course the, the London um, subway, the two uh, bombings in in uh, July of '05, uh, and a bus bombing. Um, how can we work with them to help them provide provide them the best standards and best practices and try not to make it too much of an unfunded mandate but say look if you want to provide these transportation services you need to comply with at least this baseline of of security
1: well john you know i wonder in the long term how tsa can become more proactive instead of reacting to a, an attack or an attempted attack to um, to manage those threats before they happen.
0: Yeah, and the best way that, that I found during my four and a half years as administrator was to make sure that we were risk-based intelligence driven. So I would start off every morning um, as my successors uh, have done uh, also with, with the morning intelligence briefing. So the briefing I got at the FBI every morning. Um, when I was deputy director there and head of counterterrorism uh, was against was about all threats, all risks. Uh, I got the same briefing when I was the head of TSA when uh, when it dealt with transportation security matters uh, globally and so one of the things we would do is try to make informed decisions based on what the latest intelligence said. Here's what terrorists are. Here's what terrorists are thinking about. Here's what they're they're working with. And so, whether it was a CIA, NSA, or the Department of Defense, and, and all their great uh, uh, intel collectors, we get that information and then make informed decisions and judgments and say, okay, here's what we need to be doing. And one of the things that was so important during my time at TSA was helping professionalize the workforce. We had some great folks. I think they just needed the, the okay to, let's say, things for example we created an office of professional responsibility uh, that was similar to the FBI we created a TSA Academy uh, down at uh, Glencoe Georgia the federal law enforcement Training Center to help professionalize the workforce in a way that that they could see opportunities for advancement and growth in their in their career and also just in their skill sets and everything so those are just something we, we did to try to make it, Um, a much much better informed and proactive uh, agency.
1: Well, John, we're going to take a quick pause right here. We'll come back and we'll talk about your time at the FBI. Coming next, more of my conversation with John Pistol about the role of the FBI and how to respond to emerging threats. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The FBI has dealt with countless security threats over the last 20 years, since 9-11. Now, the FBI has additional challenges. John Pistol was deputy director of the FBI from 2004 to 2010. He's currently president of Anderson University. There's also a new book about him called John S. Pistol, Searching for Integrity and Faith. John, 9-11 was a big shock to the FBI. You were at the bureau, though not deputy director. What was that day like at the FBI?
0: Well, it was just uh, the the day that changed everything. That is what comes to mind. Uh, I was actually an inspector in the the senior executive service and was in upstate New York, Albany, uh, in Syracuse, New York, which is a resident agency out of uh, the Albany Division. I just uh, interviewed some media folks and was getting ready to to interview the chief judge of the Northern District of New York, the, the chief federal district court judge when reports about a small plane hitting one of the towers and then it turns out well it wasn't a small plane it was you know an airliner and then of course the second one and and so that was the day that changed everything and for the fbi it wasn't really going from uh, one of the best if not the best law enforcement agencies in the world to solve any crime that uh, uh, you know the fbi always gets their person um, that's not literally true, but generally. And uh, just a sense of okay, how can we be proactive to detect and deter uh, future terrorist attacks? And that was Director Mueller. Of course, Bob Mueller had been on the job for as director for a week when 9 11 happened. And the day after, on September 12th, when he went to brief President Bush and the leadership at the White House, he started doing his briefing, and the president pretty quickly cut him off and said, well, that's all very well and good, Mr. Director, about what we what you know about the hijackers and and all that. But What is the FBI doing to prevent the next attack? And so in that moment, that pivot point, we went from being that reactive agency to that of being a proactive counterterrorism focused agency focusing on national security. And so director Mueller established 10 top priorities with preventing terrorist attacks as the number one priority.
1: Do you think that those changes then from being reactive to proactive have made the American public safer? Have we seen results?
0: Oh, I think so. There are are a number of documented um, cases that um, the FBI was very proactive in, either working um, as an undercover or with the Joint Terrorism Task Force officer as an undercover agent or officer. Uh, to identify potential threats and then to disrupt them from possible attacks and then others where there was no undercover officer or agent but just really good intelligence information sharing among the U.S. government and with our foreign allies to say yes this is a threat and here are steps we need to take recognizing that one of the benefits of being a, a national security focused agency is that we didn't have to get evidence of the crime you know wait till a crime has occurred and get that evidence before we could take action uh, we treated each and every national security investigation uh, as an intelligence collection platform an opportunity to gather information about the individual or the cell um, whoever it might be involved and of course the scope of that is it just domestic is it international and then to use that platform for taking actions not only by the fbi but the u.s intelligence and law enforcement communities writ large you know so john i did would,
1: want to ask you if you thought that any more changes need to happen at the fbi to address new and changing threats you know we have the threat of domestic white nationalism
0: right yeah that's the you know the january 6 attack on the cap law i think has really put into sharp focus the challenge the FBI Homeland Security, state and local uh, law enforcement agencies have to identify and be proactive, as I just described with international terrorists, what can they do? And there are some questions about the authorities and responsibilities of the FBI and, and others in terms of what they can do regarding US citizens. But, but the key is to keep um, obviously American people safe, including uh, obviously our, our lawmakers and those in government positions
1: you know, I wonder, in the very short time we have left, what you would recommend to current leaders of the of the FBI?
0: Well, I think uh, Director Chris Ray is doing a great job of letting the actions of the men and women speak for themselves and the exceptional work that they do day in day out, mostly behind the scenes, um, but not being in a partisan fight um, with those on the hill or other 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 places as to being a political pawn and so that's the, the thing about the fbi they have to be independent they have to be non-partisan and that's exactly what director ray is doing in leading uh, uh, the fbi
1: all right well john thanks so much for joining us and thank you for your service at tsa and fbi
0: thank you Mimi. good to talk to you
1: Up next, the new vaccine mandate, causing tracking challenges across agencies. Straight ahead on Government Matters, implementing technology solutions for the government-wide initiative. We archive every episode of Government Matters on govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Employees at the Department of Veterans Affairs have about a week to get vaccinated, before disciplinary actions begin. The VA issued its own vaccine mandate months in advance of the federal requirement. Jonathan Albaum is Federal Chief Technology Officer at ServiceNow. He's former Chief Information Officer at the Agriculture Department. Jonathan, welcome. Thanks for having me. Nice to see Mm -hmm. you. So the VA was kind of ahead of the curve, and now all agencies are Mm -hmm. starting to deal with the same process of getting everybody vaccinated. Can we see the VA as
2: kind of a case study well, I think there's a lot that's coming, um, that, that's visible to agencies that they can be thinking about as they seek to understand the vaccination status of all of their employees. So we have um, tight timelines, not just at the VA, but across government. By November 22nd, all employee, federal employees need to be fully vaccinated, and agencies need to be collecting that information today. Um, the by, uh, you know, two weeks before that is when you know whether or not an employee will be fully vaccinated. Fully vaccinated includes two weeks after your second dose. So the time is now for agencies to be developing systems and approaches to collect this information and to um, very quickly have their employees respond with their vaccination status, their vaccination cards, and establish an agency review and approval process. As you said, this is a really big process. What's the current system for tracking that information? Well, I, I've, uh, I've had the opportunity to work with a number of agencies that are implementing systems for vaccine status tracking. And I've seen a, a range of solutions from some agencies building uh, building their own technology solutions to others building on top of low-code platforms and and others looking for uh, platform companies of which they already work with to provide purpose-built solutions to meet these exact requirements and I kind of think of these solutions um, good better and best you know if you're if you're working with a company and a platform technology and they're building a solution that meets these exact needs well there's some confidence that comes with the fact that this company is responsible for meeting today's requirements and future requirements these requirements have changed a lot in just a few weeks. You know, a few weeks ago, we were dealing with paper attestation forms that were going to be emailed around the agency and maybe maybe stored in an online repository. We're now thinking about um, vaccination cards being uploaded, being stored for an undetermined amount of time, having potentially complex review and approval digital workflows to support Uh, agencies making good decisions and having an exception process by which agency employees may be able to um, state a religious or medical uh, reason for not being vaccinated, which is another digital workflow that agencies need to be considering. So as you compound all these requirements, uh, you really need to be looking, in my opinion, at platforms and custom-built or purpose-built applications to support these unique needs. I'm also thinking that security is going to be a problem because mm-hmm. this is health information. That's right. That's not
1: something you want being that, that,
2: shared. That's right. So it's protected health information. So um, ideally, again, if you have uh, platforms and environments that support uh, a FISMA high categorization or other security controls that's support. A- that allow for the storing of this information, uh, you have a leg up. If you don't need to establish those environments, that's going to take time and maybe uh, reinforce the need to work with a partner and a uh, platform environment that's already certified at those levels. How much is all this going to cost? Well, I think the cost is is an interesting question because there's a lot of cost to to consider. So you might have some licensing costs up front. And we're in the middle of a CR, so for some agencies, it might be tough to pay for a licensing cost. But the long-term cost could be much higher, because if you're building your own solution, you're going to have to operate and maintain the solution over a long period of time uh... you're gonna store this data in in perpetuity and we know that there are probably new requirements coming so there's uh... operations maintenance implementation costs that we need to be that we need to be thinking about it's not just the licensing costs i can't put an exact dollar figure on it's going to vary by agency and agency size but i would i would caution all agencies to think comprehensively about cost, and not just, what does it cost today to buy a software license? What is it going to cost in two or three years when we are still maintaining these solutions? And by the way, you've had to incorporate these processes into your agency's onboarding process, and um, other related requirements continue to grow, maybe contact tracing or visitor management, or you know, contractors need to be vaccinated as well. And while those requirements don't fall on the agency today, they may in the future.
1: I was going to ask you about training because mm-hmm. that's going to increase the cost right. I mean, is this something that's going to be very simple for your IT professionals to just pick up and, and work with, or do you have to train them to learn how to use it to maintain well, it?
2: Well well ideally, a- agencies are, are using uh, technologies that support you know really great experiences for the people that have to interact with them and um, upload information. Now we're using, you know, consumer-grade technologies, maybe mobile technologies. So, hopefully, the user interfaces are intuitive, and we can we can do it simply. I think the training, you know, is on maybe on the review and approval process. How are agencies going to make decisions about which exemptions they're going to approve? How is a agency supervisor or a group of uh, senior officials in agency going to re- review vaccination cards? Uh, to to um, understand whether or not they're valid. I've heard of some agencies are interested in introducing AI, ML uh, pattern matching kinds of capabilities to do a review of the cards after the fact, to look for fraudulent or um, you know false cards that were, that were up, And this that, is very complex. That has been a problem. Right. Well,
1: Jonathan, we'll continue to watch this as the mandate rolls out. Thank you so much. Well,
2: thank you, great to be here.
1: Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's at govmatters.tv and find us on social media. Subscribe to us on YouTube, follow us on Facebook. We're on Twitter at GovMattersTV and connect with us on LinkedIn at Government Matters Media. Send us your comments about the program.